So we're going to transition to uh, Dr. Rosenbaum. And so we're fortunate to have enough to have him come and talk about vicarious trauma. I know that Doc has kind of transitioned his role throughout the year as being like the only outreach psychiatrist. And now he actually does uh, public safety psychiatry and more, I guess, police and police personnel psychiatry. Yes. And I'll keep randomly rambling on trying to figure out what exactly you do. Neil says you fumble through this <laughs> PowerPoint. And I'll stop when you get back to your first slide. Okay. That's there. excellent. Okay. Yes. Thank you for having me. So I was asked to do this topic in, in, in sort of very, it, it's on the heels of some tragedies that happened in law enforcement around the state with uh, suicides and uh, officers responding to suicides, especially in small communities where um, they may actually know the people. Um, and it's very traumatic. And so this is really about trauma and then some about how to deal with that. So this is just a quote, the expectation that we could be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to be able to walk through water without getting wet, which I think is very accurate. I go forward on this. Oh, yes. And please, if you guys have questions as we go along, just put them in the text box and, and I'll, I'll We'll answer them as a group, and I'll do my best to answer them too, because uh, I think it's always better when we address personal stories and questions more so than just uh, a PowerPoint. But that being said, uh, this is sort of the whole talk is a bit of a misnomer, because it's really about, the topic was called vicarious trauma. But really, vicarious trauma is a misnomer in itself. It doesn't really exist, because trauma is trauma. So if you're hurt, you're hurt. Um, and the, the best analogy I could come up with is smoke and fire. So if you're, if you're burned, that's a direct trauma. If you're inhaling smoke or secondhand smoke or toxins downstream, that's still traumatic to your physiology. You know, so one's just worse. And so they're all trauma. And so if you're, if you're getting secondhand trauma, you're getting trauma. So, so trauma causes injury. So whether it's an injury to your ankle, an injury to your brain, like a baseball to your skull, or a, tra a traumatic injury, uh, or a psychologically traumatic injury. So people who have gone through uh, significant psychological traumas, it affects your nervous system. Your nervous system is part of your body, just like your ankle and your skull. So if your nervous system is traumatized, you've, you're, you're getting injured. And what's nice about injuries is they can improve. And people can get better. And you can avoid injuries, too. Okay, to bring this home, this idea that trauma, secondary trauma is trauma, is even in the DSM, the new version of the DSM, um, to make the diagnosis of PTSD, for example, you have to have gone through a trauma. And most people feel like that's being traumatized, so being attacked, being almost killed, being in a car accident, but it's actually not limited to that. So indirect exposure to adverse details of the trauma, usually in the course of professional duties, like first responders and medics, counts as trauma. So going to scenes where people have been murdered or had suicide, um, that's an exposure to trauma. And then same with um, dispatchers and call takers. So again, it's like that analogy of you're not in the burning building, but you're 
you're breathing all the toxins, it's just as bad. Okay, stress is a, a word that we all hear, and I just wanted to take a moment to define it. So stress is sometimes misused. So people say, I feel stressed, I feel stressed out. And really, stress itself is something that everybody experiences, and it can be good or bad. Like, uh, it, stress is just pressure over time, really. So if you crush coal, you can get a diamond. So stress is just putting pressure on something. Um, we're all feeling pressure and stressed all the time. So a stressor comes in, and then there's a stress response. And so anything that's responding to a, a, a stress can stay the same, can get stronger, can get weaker. It, it, it depends on many, many factors. Okay, this is something probably everybody's familiar with, but I just wanted to review it quickly. So the stress response that we all have. So when people have serious stress responses that they lead to just any kind of dysfunction, trouble sleeping, trouble connecting with other people, these are normal reactions to abnormal situations, and that's a very important thing for people to remember. These are normal reactions to abnormal circumstances. It's not normal to come to a scene where a child is, has killed themselves. That's not normal. And so to be a normal person, you're going to have a very difficult reaction to that. That's normal. Um, it, if you come into a scene like that and you don't feel anything, that, that's gonna catch, either going to catch up to you or you, your brain is much different than everybody else's. Um, so every, everybody has a stress response. It keeps us alive. Without, without responding to stress, a bear comes and you don't run away and you get eaten. So you have to have a stress response to stay alive. But those, those are adapted for normal situations. And what you guys deal with as police officers and first responders are not normal. Yes, please. Uh, ben according to the uh, New Mexico mental health curriculum provided by the state, yes. this uh, flight, flight or freeze reflex yes. happens when humans used to dinosaurs. contact dinosaurs. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Was there a time that dinosaurs and people coexisted? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> but if, they, if you saw a dinosaur, it would be normal to feel these things. And no, you'd probably have PTSD. <laughs> so thank you for that. Any other questions? Because I feel like I'm rambling on this is someone in the chat there is it good stress you stress you stress is another word for good stress yeah i said that as a question because i can't pronounce it <laughs> no, you did well very good i'm growing so here's an example of this performance and stress so for example if you're taking an exam like our friend matt just took an exam you need to have a, a response, a performance to stress. So if you're under, <coughs> under no stress and no one's stressing you out, you don't do anything. You're not going to study. If you think you're going to ace the test, you don't study. So you want to be somewhere in that top of that curve where you're at peak performance, where you're focused, maybe a little tired from studying too much. You don't want to get way over here where you're exhausted, you're panicked, you're angry, you're burnt out, or you have a complete breakdown. So over here in the red side, that's where stress becomes too much. And that's sort of the tail end of this is PTSD. Before that is just sort of the normal, re all of this is the normal reaction to very abnormal situations. I have a question for yes, you. Yes, please. You can go back. I can. So this is Matt Tenneth, APD. So look at this performance chart. Yes. Who's gonna be the first to notice this? The person experiencing it or like a coworker? 
That's a great question. So you mean what you're meaning is as you go to the tail end on the right and it's starting to get bad? Um, it, you know, it depends. Usually it's going to be the person because often they suffer in silence. So they're going to feel that and they might not want to talk about it. They might start isolating. So the person who isolates is isolating because they feel that. So other people don't notice it. Just think, oh, you know, they're just taking it easy tonight. But you might be in your room crying. So uh, I would say generally it's the person first. Does that answer your question? Yes. Then I'll just say, maybe you'll get this to this later, but um, is there stuff we can do to increase staying on this side of the, the good side of, uh, of healthy stress or increase your threshold for being able to handle stress and use it in a positive way? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we will get to some of that. I mean, unfortunately, one of the easiest ways is just not put yourself in those situations. And as a police officer, you can't do that. Um, so, but there are other ways and we absolutely will talk about it. So stress is cumulative. So the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. So if if you've been in an officer-involved shooting or you see a suicide and then you see another one and then four years later you see a kid who's been abused or something, that's an awful thing to see, but now the floodgates might, might open and you might all of a sudden, all those delayed things that built up, might the dam might break essentially. And where that happens, no one really knows. But what we do know is you're gonna have a reaction to being put in these terrible situations. That's normal. It's inevitable, but how it unfolds is we just don't know. But you can, you can do well for a while, then all of a sudden not do well, or it can catch us, sort of slowly get worse, or it could unload all of a sudden, you just don't know. Okay, so burnout is one of the things that can be a problem in police work or any job. And so when people start a job, before they're exposed to a lot of these traumas and, and sort of disillusionment, they come in very idealistic. And this is, the reason this is important is because if you're farther along in your career, it's often good to periodically check in with why you started this in the first place. And that's one of the ways to deal with stress. You had as Ben had asked, what are some of the coping mechanisms? And that's one of them, to, to reaffirm your idealism, what, what those ideals were based on. Uh, you can't become that naive kid again but you can say, hey, it's important to me for the community to be safe. That's why I'm here. And you have to remind yourself of that. So people start for, uh, from an idealistic standpoint in law enforcement and medicine, most professions, and then they become more realistic, and then they become cynical, hopefully with humor in the beginning. And that's, that's, that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a bad place to be, honestly. Cynicism and humor, as long as it's, it, it's good-natured and it's not bringing you down and it's helping you bond as a team, it's not isolating you from other people. Cynical humor is very good, and the cynical humor and sarcastic humor is, a, is an excellent coping mechanism. Um, but once it becomes cynical without humor, then it's starting to get troublesome and then you can become pessimistic and fatalistic. And that's, that's the far end of the curve. Again. What's after fatalistic? <laughs> that's the last part. So, Jeff yes. Lowers with APD. So fatalism, I, APS education, can you explain that just a little bit for me? So fatalism is just like you believe everything's terrible, everything's going to shit. You have a fatal outlook on life. Like there's no purpose. It's like nihilistic to an extreme. Like nihilistic, like I don't care about anything. 
fatalistic as everything is bad. So almost every citizen in Albuquerque is fatalistic. <laughs> no, hopefully not. <laughs> I don't feel fatalistic, at least not now. So that's one counter. Uh, but that's a good question. Thank you. It's just pessimism to the extreme. It's fatal. Okay, so this says uh, people aren't chocolates. You know what they are mostly? Bastards. Bastard coated bastards with bastard film. So that's uh, that's cynicism, with them, still with some humor. Okay, so when faced with a trauma, especially the ones that we're talking about, suicide in youth and coming onto the scene and seeing a dead child, um, is going to affect you. There's no way. And when you see that, it's not uncommon, it's pretty much normal for this trauma to cause a shift in the way you view everything. Your meaning, your morality, you view safety, you view other people. Whatever glasses you are wearing, you've now switched glasses from the rose colored to the gray color. It, it just changes the way you view things. And it can be very devastating and isolating and confusing and scary. And these are all, unfortunately, normal reactions to these abnormal situations. And so the question is, well, how do we get from, from there to a more stable place and you when you get an, a bad injury you don't heal completely what you do is you change so you can grow you can adapt you can but you're not going to you're not going to go back and become naive you're going to be different and you can be better you can be worse but you're going to be different and so it's sort of making sense coming up with a new world order and that's with grief of anything you have a death in your family of a close loved one and it happened suddenly or didn't happen suddenly you have to reevaluate everything you have to uh, your whole world is now different um and also with trauma there's a loss there's a loss of that innocence i mean for lack of a better word and you can't get that innocence back but you can have a wonderful life I don't want this to be depressing. <laughs> That's okay. We'll never get back to innocence. That's not depressing at all. So, Chander, this is a quote from an officer with a friend killed in the line of duty. He said, I was taught that law enforcement work is dangerous, but I never realized it until I lost a close friend. I no longer trust anyone or any situation. So that's sort of still in the, the midst of changing his worldview. This person can come out on the other side where he does start to trust some people, doesn't trust others, can have a more nuanced view of the world, but that takes time. So this is kind of in the throes of it. <coughs> okay, just to quickly go over the symptoms for PTSD. So this, once you get to PTSD, you're kind of on the far end of the curve. Everybody has these bad reactions, and PTSD is... So the worse the stress, the more likely you are to get to this point. Um, some stresses are so bad, it's kind of inevitable that you're going to get to this point. Like, it's just normal to get to this point. Um, and then it, the, the only question is, how long does it last? Um, and for some people, it lasts a few weeks. It can last a few months. It depends on the person. So avoiding things, avoiding any memories of the, the situation. So if you came upon uh, a suicide you're going to avoid anything that reminds you of suicides, anything that reminds you of somebody that looks like the person who had the suicide. You might drive a, a different way. You also avoid the 
the thoughts of it. So you might block the thoughts. You might try to block out emotions. Um, and you do this because re-experiencing them is very painful. So re-experiencing the classic one is nightmares, but not everybody gets nightmares or flashbacks. That's even less common. Um, but re-experiencing is also conversations about it, thoughts about it, memories about it. You just pop up and then you feel that scared feeling, that hyper-arousal, that terrible feeling. And then hyper-arousal is that constant vigilance, looking over your shoulder, uh, always be on edge, being grumpy, irritable, those kind of things. And then the negative thoughts that go along with PTSD are, you know, the, the other one that you see in every TV show is, oh, it's my fault, it's my fault. And then the therapist says, no, it's not your fault. And they hug and everything's wonderful. So that doesn't really happen. What? Sorry. Hold on, I have a question. Matt's here in the APD. So you're saying that this is the extremist PTSD? Yeah. Where, how do you define the difference between the, this is normal from... You're seeing a so, event that's PTSD. That's a great question. So, so it, this is to, to get the diagnosis of PTSD. So the, you have to have it for a month, these symptoms, and they have to have some from each of these clusters, and you have to have a trauma, and it can't be explained by something else. So that's how you get the diagnosis. Um, and it has to affect you negatively, and it can't be caused by drugs. So it has to have that negative effect, and it has to be lasting. So it's normal to have a trauma and have negative reactions, all of these in different uh, extremes. But if you're able to cope and get through your day and it's not so bad, and let's say it was a car accident and maybe you don't drive for a few days and then you start to feel more comfortable. So you've gone through all these things, but you process them a lot quicker. But a car accident is much different than coming across a loved one who's killed themselves violently. So that the worse the trauma, the more likely it is to cause PTSD. So the, the most extreme is like, uh, and the more it conflicts with your belief system. So the most extreme version is like a nun who's lived a devout life, and then all of a sudden she's brutally raped. Um, that doesn't fit in with her worldview at all. She can't make any sense of it. It's a horrible trauma. Maybe she's been kidnapped for a while. She's going to have PTSD. There's no way. Or prisoners of war are going to get PTSD. It's sort of, that's the normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Does that make sense? Detective Vic Weeby from Alcure Police Department said, made a statement that uh, he, he is seeing juveniles that suffer PTD. PTD? Is it missing the S? Yeah, no, children can get this, absolutely, and they usually get it from abuse and neglect. Like kids in the foster care system have very high rates of PTSD. It's just expressed somewhat differently, but it, it's definitely there. Okay, so I'm going to go over an article. When I was researching for this talk, I came across an interesting article where these guys, they interviewed people, uh, police officers, who on the effects and how they cope with completed suicide calls. Like, how did, they, how did they do it? And so they came up with 10 common coping mechanisms that all the officers used, uh, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad, and some of them could be both good and bad. And so we'll go through those, because I think it's an interesting thing to look at. Like, you guys are all police officers. You're in this culture. How do, how do you guys do it? Um, just sort of without any guidance or anything. So one of the things that said in this article is that everything, all these points of uh, how people cope, either well or not well, all happen within the police culture. You're sort of soaked in it. 
And that sort of defines a lot of the ways uh, police officers deal with trauma. And this is just one definition of police culture. It's not necessarily the best. I just came across it. Okay, it's a sense of mission about police work, an orientation towards action, a cynical or pessimistic perspective regarding the social environment, an attitude of constant suspicion, and a strong code of solidarity with other police officers. Does that resonate with anybody? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so these are, the, these are just three of them, and they're not in any order. So these are the, the, the coping mechanisms that were defined. <laughs> so reliance on a police role. So what that means is you, you're, you come across this trauma. One of the things you can do is, well, I'm going to do all the right cop things. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sign all the, do all the paperwork properly. I'm going to fill out every form. I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to take lots of calls for service. I'm just going to, I'm going to take extra overtime. I'm going to be a cop and that's going to be everything. And not, that's how I'm going to make sense of the world. Um, but what happens, what can happen is, so if you go to a homicide call, there's a lot of things you can do. Oh, we got to find the bad guy. We got to do this. We got to secure the scene. We have to, there's a lot of things that cops love to do things. That's part of the culture. Do, do, do. But if you find, come across a suicide, there's really not as much to do. You feel much more helpless. It's much more difficult to rely on that police role but it is still a coping mechanism. It can have benefits as long as it doesn't, and this is true for all of them, as long as it doesn't drown out your ability to be, to reflect and to uh, uh, have your emotions and let your emotions surface. Um, so blocking feelings is generally not a great coping mechanism. There, I mean, the only time that that's good is if you're at work and you have to focus and you have to do things. Um, but even at work, it's probably not the best place to block your feelings unless you're on a call. But if you're talking to your friends, that's the time to share your feelings and to, to express your emotions or to even just let people know. It's a, it kind of goes against police culture in a lot of ways. I think the culture is shifting, but I think it is important not to, to block feelings. So that is one way to get through a trauma a little faster. But the the caveat always is you have to do it in your own time. Uh, the other coping mechanism is just staying in a high adrenaline state, taking all the calls for service, doing everything you can. That's one way to cope with stress. It's sort of, I'm not going to think about it because I have to think about all these other things. I'm going to stay on a high. And that can work while you're at work, and it can be effective at work. But when you go home and the adrenaline's turned off, it can lead to a very low, low, lead to isolation and avoidance and withdrawal. So you have to be careful with that. Anger is another very common coping mechanism. Um, and anger is, not such, <laughs> anger is not such a bad one, actually. So it's what you do with that anger and how you direct it. So if, if you're angry at the, the situation and there was a homicide, you will catch the bad guy, and the anger is a good thing. If there's anger at a suicide, it's harder to make sense of it. You're angry at the person who killed themselves. You're angry at yourself for maybe I should have done something differently, or why didn't I get here sooner? Or why didn't the parents do something? So that anger can be destructive, but anger is just a powerful emotion, and if you start to channel it into things that are a little bit more productive, like I don't ever want another child to have to go through this, or I don't want to ever have a friend go through this, so I'm going to start donating my time and energy to causes that 
will help prevent these kind of things. So that's one way to channel a, a, a normal emotion of anger into a more productive um, way. So humor was actually the most widely used one by police officers. And what's sad about this is I was looking for images of police officers crying. So if you type into Google, and you can experiment with this at your leisure, um, cops crying, this is going to be the first image. And it's a joke. It's a, it's a kind of an insult to police officers. First of all, because it's not a joke. That's a situation that's happening there. But so uh, that's it. for people who can't see it, it's a cop crying in front of a Krispy Kreme truck that's being driven away. And so he's devastated by that loss. And so, um, but humor is, a, it can be a very good coping mechanism for the most part until it becomes too cynical, inappropriate, um, or it's just a way to avoid feelings. Um, <laughs> I actually had a question about that. Yeah. Um, then we'll just APD. So there's, I mean, cops are famous or infamous for the dark sense of humor, the gallows humor, probably sure. the medical field as well. Yes. I mean, and I've heard different theories about whether that's a good coping mechanism or it's not. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a good coping mechanism, but it's, it's a matter of degree. It, it, if you can't, if you lose all your other sense of humor and it's only gallows humor, then you start heading in the wrong direction. And if it's only gallows humor and now it's becoming more cynical and that cynicism is sort of coloring everything you do that's headed in the wrong direction but generally and from the classics sort of sublimation and all the you know the freudian stuff humor is one of the better ones to use yes please. you just uh then most of these things are on a spectrum kind of like the curve that the dr rosenbaum showed earlier and they're not, and he's saying, you know, blocking feelings can be helpful in some situations and is not so helpful in other situations. So most of these are on a spectrum, not just like this is good or this is bad, but it's where it's at and how you're using it. Yeah, and that alone is difficult for the cop culture. You want right, right or wrong, yeah. on or off. Ah, yes. You have some stuff to check. Dr. Hatfield says, I would uh, say it's good, but it can't be your only coping strategy. Kirsten Harsinski said, in regards to the anger response, how much of that comes from fear? I've heard that fear and anger are similar responses or emotions. You know, it's interesting because I, I agree. I think they are, they're, they're sort of cousins. And some people believe, and I'm kind of in that category, that anger really is a reaction to fear. So the best example I could come up with is you're driving in your car, someone cuts you off. Your initial response would mainly be a second is fear. Oh my God, I might die. And you might not even be aware of it. And then your next response is anger. So really the anger is born out of the fear. So that's, a, that's an excellent question. And I have a question for you. So back to the APD. Back to the humor and the gallows humor. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations on how or when people should use it? Because unfortunately that is something that we were just talking about that gets officers in a lot of trouble. Sure, no, I think you wanna make sure it's the right group of people, especially as the humor is getting darker and darker. So you wanna make sure it's the right group of people that are all sort of in on it and can benefit from it as it's a team bonding as opposed to, you don't want it to be exclusionary. Um, I think one of the main things and doctors have to learn this too is you know, you're, you go to the bedside, you talk to a patient, then you step out with, the, with your friend, and you just start laughing because they told a joke. You know, the person in there is thinking, oh, my God, they're laughing at me. And we're probably 
laughing about something completely different. So I know this has happened on scenes that I've been on. We go, we talk to somebody, we're, we're 10 feet away, maybe it's a, 10 minutes later, we're all laughing really hard. Of course the person's gonna think they're laughing about me. And so that's not a good time to do that. So um, if, if there's a somber moment, you, you wanna be appropriate. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So faith, this is another interesting one. So just like everything else, faith can be on that spectrum. So it, it, it can do a lot of good for a lot of people, and I'm a strong believer in it. But in, this, in these interviews with these cops who dealt with a lot of um, suicides, one of the things that I found interesting is that they said faith, for some of them, was very difficult because it didn't give the comfort they were expecting, and it didn't make sense. And so it was almost more isolating going to church and hearing things about, you know, God's plan when they weren't ready to hear it. And so it, you kind of have to be prepared that that might happen. And that is one of those classic things that happens when trauma happens. You, you lose some of that faith and you feel disconnected. So it's one of the ones that you kind of have to approach gently. You can't, uh, I mean, you can do it, <laughs> but um, it, it, it's something that doesn't happen for most people overnight. Like, oh, I've re-established my faith and I feel all better. So other coping mechanisms. So this is interesting. Exploring the victim's life. So some people did it more and some people did it less. Like, I want to know more. I want to know why this happened. Why did this person kill themselves? And it gave them some comfort knowing more and wanting getting answers. Downside to that one is there generally are no right answers. There isn't like, oh, this is, you know, he, the, the, the kid lost this and he lost that and then this, and it all makes perfect sense, and anybody in that situation would have killed themselves. It doesn't happen. So going down that rabbit hole can give you some comfort, but don't expect to find an answer. So sometimes the process of doing it can be helpful, but if you're expecting an answer, that's not going to help. And then the opposite is I don't want to know anything about it. And that can be, that can work as long as it's not creeping up and gnawing at you and you're just hammering it down consciously or subconsciously. Um, again, it's that sweet spot in there. It's, there's no perfect way to do it. Uh, and then the other one is engaging or disengaging with survivors. Same thing. So this person had a suicide by suicide. The family's left behind. Do I comfort them? Do I, do I give them a call the next day? Or do I just ignore them and go on to the next one? Again, no right answers. Uh, other coping mechanisms from the same um, study. So telling stories generally is a good one, kind of like human. So that's one of, the, one of the main things in PTSD therapy is making sense, reorganizing the story, understanding it, sharing with people who have had similar things. So telling stories is very important. The big caveats on this one is don't just tell stories at work. You know, if you're, if you're going through a lot of stress and difficulty and you're telling stories about your job and then you go home and you don't say anything to your family, now you're, you're having two completely separate narratives. And that's not good for trauma integration in your brain because you're trying to make sense of it. And if you're just splitting right down the middle, that can cause trouble. Depersonalizing the victim. So this means... People do this on homicide calls. You, 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 you don't care about the person. It's not an actual person. You can, make, you can use gallows humor. It doesn't matter. It's more difficult sometimes with um, suicides because 
It just is, especially with kids. Um, but this, even this has its place. Do you have to fill out a report and do all this, thinking about all the details of this previous person's life and how wonderful they were doing? You're not going to be able to get through the report. So you can compartmentalize or depersonalize for short periods, I think is, is good. Okay, so grief and loss. So facing any kind of death or trauma, it sends you through stages and waves of grief, especially on a small community where someone has child has died, everybody is grieving. When you personally have gone through a trauma, either the death of a friend or a family member, or you've been assaulted, there's a grief and loss of your innocence. And so there's grief and loss are sort of inevitable parts of the human condition. And so these things have been studied, and these are just stages that go back to Kubler-Ross, um, but they've been modified somewhat. So the first stage is you hear about a trauma or you see something and you're just in shock. And so, again, going back to finding pictures of police officers crying. So if you do cops crying, and it has to be COPS crying, you'll get that, that comedy one. The other way, otherwise it's hard to find the picture sometimes, um, which I thought, just think is interesting. I mean, the whole culture, even on the internet, is not there. If you put man crying, you'll see tons of pictures. Or you see athlete crying, or famous athlete crying, you'll see tons of pictures. You do cops crying, you're not going to find this much. Um, and so that goes along with the culture. Um, so and the way you do, the, the acceptable way for cops to cry, I think, in person and online, is you do funeral services. You'll see most of the pictures of cops crying, they're in their full regalia. So they're most likely at a funeral. Okay, so shock. Shock is that first thing. And, and this happens, there was a, a, working in the ER, there was a patient, we had to tell their family that their, their husband died suddenly. And uh, the wife said, okay, uh, when can he come home? We want to go home. I'm like, uh, yeah. And you know, they, she didn't process it at all. She's like, completely didn't see it. And that goes into denial. So denial is, is another important uh, thing that people do. Oh, it didn't really happen. It, 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 we're going to wake up and it's all going to be better, especially with trauma that you feel. These are stages of loss. That you, so if you lose something like someone's about to die or someone died, deny, denying it is a very common thing to do. Anger, we discussed already, which is very common. To any kind of grief, loss, or trauma. So bargaining is um, is more about impending losses. Well, you know, my grandfather is really sick and ill, and he's going to die. But if I just visit him more often, he'll live longer. Or if I just you know pray more, he'll live longer. Or these kind of things are bargaining. Um, and and these these aren't these don't flow in a, a rational manner. They kind of all get mixed up. <laughs> Depression is thought of one of the later stages of grief. So you've gone through the anger, the shock, the denial. You, you sort of bargain about it, and then you start to feel depressed. And depression can last, unfortunately, a long time because you have to start doing the hard work of re-piecing your life together. And the first step on that is called testing. And so testing means sort of testing the waters. Is it okay for me to be normal again? Can I leave the house? Will people 
that think I'm a terrible person for having gone through this or will they accept me? So that's sort of testing the waters. And then eventually one can get to acceptance. So this loss happened, I'm a new person, and I'm going to move forward, and it's just part of my life. Or this trauma happened. This trauma happened, I'm not going to deny it. I've integrated it into my nervous system and into my life and into my story of my life. It's mostly what we tell ourselves is just a narrative of our life. And so you have to rewrite your narrative to fit with what happened. Yes. Jeff Lovers with APD. How would you tell cops to come to acceptance of some of the things that they've done or seen? That is an excellent question. And so I, I will get to that in a little bit. Um, but the short answer is you don't tell them. You, you don't tell them how to do it. So here it is. It, the, the, this is the, the layout of all of them, the, the classic Kubler-Ross dealing with grief. Um, what I like about this is it has this sort of waves because that's how grief comes. And that's one of the ways to tell the difference between grief and depression. Depression is like a constant tide that keeps rising and makes you feel awful. And you just kind of get farther and farther underwater. Your mouth is barely above the water. Grief comes in waves. You'll, you'll just get smacked all of a sudden walking down the street with a reminder of something. And that's how trauma can be too. You're feeling okay and then, oh my God, I, it all just came rushing back. Um, so, so to answer part of your questions on the bio, the bottom here is, you know, giving and getting information offering emotional support, giving guidance and direction, not telling them how to do it. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So grieving is suicide death. So suicide death grief has extra complications. So especially the loss of a child to suicide. So there's the shock, but you have all the stigma and shame. You know, someone will has a hard enough time saying that, hey, you know, my son died of cancer and it was devastating but my son died of suicide is just too much to bear. And it's too shameful and people feel like it's their fault and they feel like other people are gonna think it's their fault. And so it's very awful and isolated. Um, and then regret and guilt, which happens with all kinds of losses and traumas is even worse because one, it's just worse. It's a, it's a stronger degree of regret and then it's also mixed in with more stigma. So you're living in alone at night, not sleeping, essentially. I should have done this, replaying it over and over. If I had just taken this call earlier, if I had just visited that family one more time, or I knew this person was going downhill, why didn't I do something? Um, and then anger, obviously. Questioning and confusion is even bigger because it just doesn't make any sense. And you can question everything about life and meaning and religion, and the despair can be harder, and the disillusionment can be stronger. Um, that disillusion mean, means, I, you know, I used to believe one thing and now that, that shit doesn't make sense anymore. And then a feeling of rejection. So you feel rejected by the person who killed themselves. So how could your child do this to you? So anger can be very confusing because you feel anger towards your child for rejecting. And that's an awful feeling. And this can also happen for cops towards someone who, who had a suicide. If you see a child who had a suicide, you, you as a cop feel rejected because this is not the kind of society we should be living in. I'm here to protect people. This shouldn't happen. Why is this happening? It's a rejection of who I am and what I believe in. Um, so here, recommended coping strategies. So really the number one 
thing is trying to stay connected with people. And so the, after an initial trauma, the best thing you can do is connect and reconnect with people you love and trust. Try not to isolate. Um, stay a part of a group. Reach out, tell stories. You don't have to do it all at once, but certainly don't do the opposite. Don't retreat from people. Don't um, ball up or be in a shell. That makes things, generally makes things worse. Uh, acknowledging these feelings. So acknowledging and accepting these feelings. So you feel angry at your own child for killing themselves, or you feel angry at the child you see on scene for killing themselves. That's a normal feeling. Feelings are just going to happen. They only get worse when you try to ignore them, not have them, not share them. Even if they feel embarrassing, it's better to feel them and literally feel them. So where do I feel this in my body? What is happening? This is, this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Um, and that goes along with relaxation and grounding techniques. The other one is take control. So if you went through a trauma or you see something, don't passively let the waves smack you around. Learn how to dive under the waves. Learn how to walk closer to the shore. Come up with some kind of coping mechanisms to take charge, uh, to take control. Because one of the things that happens in trauma is a loss of safety, a loss of personal safety, loss of safety in the world. And one of the ways to overcome that is to be active, reestablishing that safety. So one way to do that is reestablish your team and schedule times for things that you enjoy. So you're feeling terrible, you're going through a trauma, you're going through a stress. Put on your calendar, I'm gonna have a long lunch or whatever, or I'm gonna go to the, go to, um, the park with my family. And put it in the calendar, make sure you do it. Um, avoid media coverage, I think you guys all know that one. Try to eat well, sleep well, don't drink alcohol, especially don't use it as a medicine. And if you need to, seek professional help early and as often as you need. So this goes back to what you were saying. This is a quote from actually my own grandfather, who was a doctor. Never tell someone who to love or how to grieve. And that was sort of one of his parting things that he gave to us when he was dying. And he's right. So you can't tell someone who to love. That never works. We've all been through that. You're an idiot. Why are you dating that girl? She's going to fuck up your life. They do it anyway, right? And so, poor guy. <laughs> 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 it and it's the same with how to grieve. So you don't you don't tell somebody. You, you don't say you should do this or why don't you do that or do that. You listen to them. You guide them. You give them information. This is what kind of like what I'm doing. This happens to other people. This is not unusual. Here's some support groups. So you sort of guide them along and be there for them. And here's some, yeah, go ahead. This is Matt Smith, APD. I know in some of other lectures you talk about using alcohol as a medicine. What yeah. does that mean? So I think alcohol can be a, 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 a good thing. So you drink it in moderation, you use it to celebrate occasionally, or you have a glass of wine with dinner. You know, some studies show that that can actually help you live longer and live better. But if you're starting to use it in order to fall asleep, in order to forget things, in order to feel numbed, in order to feel happy again, you're using it as a medicine. You're using it like one should use an antidepressant or a sleeping aid. And once you cross that threshold, which is it's not a clear threshold, but once you cross it, you're like, oh, I need a drink to fall asleep, 
or I'm going to have a drink half an hour before I go to bed so I can sleep better, it's going to do more harm than good, almost guaranteed. Yeah. Dr. McQueen, in psychiatry, just to add on to that, um, it often, like, that sounds very clear, but it oftentimes doesn't start that way. It doesn't start with like, oh, I'm going to have a drink so I forget about this. Um, but it's just like, oh, I had my social drink and I realized that I was a little bit calmer. I wasn't thinking about that trauma that I want to be avoiding. So then that becomes a pattern and then it becomes more than one drink and then it kind of gradually gets to that point. So having some kind of awareness when the drinks are starting earlier about how it's how it's making you feel and what you're liking about it or not liking about it because that can then lead to um, more negative uh, patterns. Absolutely, absolutely, thank you. So this also goes to what you were saying, uh, Detective Lovewood. You know, how do you help people? So it, it's not easy. It's not easy to help people because one, one of the main reasons that it's hard to help people is because it's scary and you feel vulnerable and, and it's, you don't want to be around them. So someone's gone through a terrible trauma, often people don't want to deal with it. They don't want to engage it. They don't want to come forward. They don't want to talk about death. Um, so it's just hard. But if you do have the determination to help somebody, make sure it's at their own pace and offer practical and consistent support. So for example, if someone uh, has a death in their family, you know, often people say, oh, well, anything you want, I'll do for you. Anything. But people, you have to do it. You have to say, hey, I'm going to bring over some food next week. How many servings would you like? That kind of thing. Sort of practical and do it consistently. Um, so, hey, I know you haven't been out of the house for a while. There's this new movie. Seems like something you'd like. Do you want to come? Um, those kind of things. So practical, consistent support. And remember, everybody grieves in their own way, comes in waves, and help people socialize. I was just talking about that. And don't pressure people into talk. Just be willing to listen. So, hey, I, I see that you're not yourself. Is there anything you want to tell me? I'm here to listen. And listen. Don't interrupt and start telling them what to do and how to do it, because that's what we all end up doing. Um, and be realistic. Don't offer platitudes. And I, I alluded to this earlier. And the one that you see in all the movies is it's not your fault, it's not your fault. And then there's this big cathartic moment and everything's wonderful. But if someone who's gone through a trauma and feels it's their fault, and they feel that 95% that it's their fault, let's just say, or even 50%. And you say to them, it's not their fault, that's even more isolated. So they'll feel like you don't get it. So it's better to say, oh, that must be awful to feel that it's your fault. Why do you feel that way? What makes you think that? Is, is there any other way to look at it? That kind of stuff. So self-care. Self-care is what people do for themselves to establish and maintain health and uh, prevent and deal with illness. I'll go through these last slides pretty quickly. Resilience is a process of sort of, that's what we talked about, how do you not get there in the first place? And it's sort of using these same strategies, but before trauma happens. What did you Google to get that picture? <laughs> that I didn't. This was part of another lecture. Um, so all the strategies we talked about, connecting with people, being eating well, sleeping well, these are all the same things that help with resilience. Volunteering your time. So there are healthy organizations. So an organization can be not very trauma aware and make tra individual traumas within that organization worse and can also be traumatic in itself. So you go to your boss and they yell at you or you have to do all this terrible paperwork or you just witnessed a, a suicide and now they're kind of blaming you for fucking up the scene. So the, 
that could be traumatizing in itself. So these are the things that you want in a healthy organization. And if anybody's interested, I'll be happy to send them. Um, what happens when organizations don't address vicarious trauma or trauma? You know, lost productivity, staff turnover, um, resources wasted, erosion of focus, concentration, motivation, all these kind of things if we're not dealing with it properly. And this is a vicarious trauma toolkit that's put out for the Office of Victims of Crime that any, and I will have the, the link there, so if any organization wants to go, and I looked at it, it's just a series of questions and you sort of rate yourself on where you need to improve. That's it. And I had this picture just because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> why, why did you find this picture? I don't know. I googled a whole bunch of stuff. I thought that was an interesting picture. It's a, it's a cop being a hero. Saving a life. It's a good thing. And you find that interesting? I do. Like cuffs save people's it's lives. Symbolic. This is interesting. Saving life. There's hope. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get that. the picture right after that. <laughs> Any questions, thoughts, concerns? What questions from the network? Doc. It's a BMW, don't you do it? Five well, ones. So this is Matt Tenney with APD. So earlier in the slide, you kind of mentioned that um, innocence is lost and kind of things don't go away. When law enforcement or public safety retires or quits doing the profession, do things get better or do they only get better if you follow treatments like that? That's a good question. I, I think it, it depends. I mean, some people, sometimes you can retire and it gets better because you're not constantly reminded of the stress and the trauma and you're out of the administrative bureaucratic stuff, which makes things a lot worse for a lot of people. So in that sense, it can get better. But some people need that camaraderie of the police and the, it, it really depends on how much you've made police work your identity. So if, you, if police work is your entire identity and now you're no longer a cop, things may get worse. Um, but there's no guarantee. I, I don't have an easy answer. And there's a question from the network. What do you think about EMDR therapy for those who suffer from vicarious trauma? So I, I, think, um, I think EMDR is an effective treatment. I think... Um, it's not any more or less effective than other things that are equally as good. So I, I w if you're looking for therapy, I wouldn't hold out for any MDR therapist. You just want to have somebody who's good at working with trauma. Um, yeah. Medicines work very well. Um, the best is medicine and some kind of talk therapy. Uh, generally, the either or is about equally as effective. Therapy can last longer because you stop the medicine and the effect sometimes just goes away. But EMDR is, is sort of a very cop-friendly one because, it's a, again, it's a doing kind of therapy. You're, you're looking at things and you're, you're following a protocol and you're shuffling your eyes around. So, it's, so I think in that sense, it's done well. It's very good. The, the downside with EMDR is I, I think it can lead to some people sort of like hypnosis. You know, some people who do hypnosis are good at it, but it's sort of dangerous. It can be potentially, you have to be really, know what you're doing. What does it stand for? Uh, uh, failed in desensitization. Yes. 
Thank you for putting out. Hey, um, oh, this is Rachel. Um, no, I was going to add also one of the reasons with like prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy, some of the other PTSD treatments um, with uh, military personnel when they're going to be redeployed, we like to use those is because they can also help increase resi resilience for future traumas because it kind of gives them the roadmap of how to process these things and how to build resilience. EMD, uh, sorry, E. And EMDR. Yeah. yeah, we do that as well, but we do that less with guys that are active that are going to be redeployed because of that component. It's kind of missing. Oh, interesting. That's actually very helpful. Thank you. Good. And Jen also put in the comment just so you guys know we'll have EMDR and brain spotting. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. In two weeks. <laughs> totally thought I might have misread that. So when it comes to treatments and people bringing this up, if someone is wanting treatment, how or who, who do they call and what would they ask for? So if you are wanting treatment, so someone brought up EMDR. So if you're like, I think I'm at the far end of it and maybe I'm misusing alcohol or I think I have PTSD, who would you recommend that they call? And I, I, what should they ask for? Sure. I, I think you know, for everybody on the network, everybody, has insurance because we're all employed. So I would start with your insurer and say that you're wanting some kind of talk therapy and specifically for trauma. Um, and that's where I would start because then you'll get somebody who's covered. Like here in New Mexico, we have these uh, care coordinators so you can talk to them and it's their job to connect you with somebody who's a good fit. So that, that's where I would start. And if you're local here and you're APD, you can just call behavioral sciences. So, so I have a question on the text for you. I actually referenced that. When calling behavioral sciences, if someone does not answer, what would you recommend? Uh, you can call or email me. My number is 505-573-5703. And my email is just nrosenbaum at cabq.gov.